0: Voting rights, health care, reproductive health, LGBTQ rights. These are just a few issues that may be at stake in the upcoming sessions of the Supreme Court. As everyone knows, the makeup of the court is in the middle of a particularly acrimonious political fight after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now it looks as though President Trump has the votes to cement a conservative majority. There are many questions about what's next when it comes to policies, that will shape life in America, perhaps for generations. My guest to talk about all of this is someone who is a pioneer in her own right. Fatima Goss Graves is president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, which advances gender justice. A co founder of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, she is regularly called to testify before Congress for her expertise on gender and civil rights issues. A Yale Law graduate, she was the first lawyer in her family and is the first African American head of the organization whose founding was inspired in part by Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work at the ACLU Women's Rights Project. Welcome to Equal Time, Fatima. Thank you. Of course, uh, I have to ask you, as a lawyer and as a black woman, what you think of the charges that were and were not brought against the police officers in Louisville in the killing of Breonna Taylor?
1: Well, I I have to say it certainly was not justice. And if there is any question about whether there was justice for that Black woman or really for Black women more broadly, Mm -hmm. that is not what we saw in this time. And it's really heartbreaking, Uh, And I I heard from people uh, all yesterday afternoon and this morning who were sort of thinking, where do we go next? What is there to do? And the one offering that I have is that the clarity around the criminal legal system not working for Black people, for this Black woman, but for Black people, um, could not be more clear in this case. And a system that so clearly does not work and serve all is not one that can stand. And so we're really at an apex, I think.
0: Well, where do we go from here? And where do you go from here?
1: Well, one of the things that's clear is that the leadership and energy that is coming largely from younger people, um, that that is leadership that we need to be guided vibe. And I take that charge very seriously. I take the idea that groups on the ground in community are saying that there is something fundamentally flawed with the entire system. So one thing I'm clear about is that our demands cannot be as small as they were before. And they have to include looking at the problems that are basically at the root, the problems that are basically meaning that that our systems are over-militarized and are able to have a sense of justice without any accountability. But the other thing that is deeply on my mind is that this whole idea that makes it extremely hard to hold police accountable at all, all of that is sort of a creation From many years ago, from a bad Supreme Court decision. It was basically a bad Supreme Court decision that created this whole framework that made it so that police understand in their day to day that they are likely to not be held accountable no matter what they do. And so we gotta go to the root of that as well. And part of that, part of going to the root of that is a deep reminder around what is at stake when you're talking about the Supreme
0: Court. Yeah, and this week, you know, we've been still mourning and we see the crowds after the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I know her work had a lot to do with your organization as well. And even though it didn't take long for it to pivot from her death to the political jockeying over her replacement, I'd like to pause just to ask you a little bit about how Trailblazer Ginsburg Uh, inspired trailblazer Fatima Goss-Graves. I mean, she's still, you know, lying in repose at the Supreme Court today.
1: And and the lines have been wrapped around the block. Um, You know, she was a legend in the law. You know, for someone like me, who's not just a lawyer, but the first lawyer in my family. Um, And, you know, so much of what I understood to be you know, what's possible uh, from, as a lawyer came from Justice Ginsburg. She built the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU and she litigated the landmark cases that established what it meant to be equal in this country. And so when you're coming up um, through the law you, you, and you imagine yourself doing the work of justice, you know, there's no one like her. There are very few who've been able to craft those sorts of careers, and so I, you know, I've actually been spending the last couple of days looking back at some of her opinions and her writings, and really appreciating her life and her legacy, and um, feeling pretty grateful that we that we had the gift of her.
0: As you're looking over that the last few days, is there something that is a highlight of that legacy that you feel that you can particularly build on?
1: I I think for me, there's two things. The, f- the first is that creating a legal framework, even when there isn't one. You know, when I think about the work she built at the ACLU, she was going into court and into rooms and making the case that the law required something that no one had ever said it required before. So like, how bold do you have to be to go in someplace and sort of say, I'm going to ask you to look at everything very different from how you've looked at it before. And that courage, that boldness to actually update our laws, to match our culture, I'm going to carry that with me because I think we need that now. Um, But the second thing is to take a long game through dissent. There are so many cases and times where she spoke with such certainty and clarity in a dissent. And she was taking the long view. Her dissent wasn't necessarily about convincing the court today. It was planting the seeds for tomorrow. It was giving a call to action, to movement, to Congress, to others to be better than the current court. And I frankly think we're really going to need that spirit.
0: Wow. Now, you know, there's an argument that, of course, whenever someone is looking at a legacy of a person, there's other folks who look at other pieces of it. And uh, some folks have said that she symbolized more of an elitist notion of feminism, uh, one that was more connected to white women of privilege uh can you comment on on that so i
1: you know i actually think it's, it is not a bad thing to critique heroes and to complicate legacies i think that's a good thing um i do worry that some folks are dramatically oversimplifying her record i get the sense that some of these folks have clearly never ra- read any of her Opinions. They didn't read clearly her dissent in Shelby County, where it was her very pointed charge about what it would mean to dismantle the Voting Rights Act in the way that the majority opinion did. And they haven't read clearly some of her opinions where she quite meticulously centered the experiences of low-income women in, in, in making the case for why it is um, that the majority was wrong. like If you spend some time with her dissents, that'd be hard. And at the same time, you know, people have really, there is this picture of her law clerks standing on the steps of the Supreme Court. And it's a really powerful image of, you know, over a hundred people standing there um, to greet her. Um, and, And you can feel their grief even through a photo, right? It it was an extraordinarily white group and she's only had two black clerks and that there's no excuse for that record. Right. Um, But it actually also speaks to a larger fundamental problem that I actually hope maybe this means people will talk about it. You know, I went to um, an elite law school. I, I clerked on the court. When I was clerking, there was only one other black, person clerking at the same time. And if you wonder 20 years later, whether um, those courts look very different, they don't. And there are systems where very elite law schools whittle down from their, (laughs) a handful of people from their elite populations and only send a few along for those opportunities. So I like. I actually think we need to do some disruption of what happens in that clerk hiring because it makes a difference in terms of the outcomes for these cases all along the way. And I hope actually people learning that about her hiring practices and about probably the hiring practices of many of the justices of the court and many of our federal courts will finally get people to disrupt what I think is a dirty secret in the legal profession.
0: Yeah. Now, some people, particularly some on the left, have also criticized her for not resigning when Barack Obama was president and give him a chance to name her successor. Uh, What do you think of that? And do you think uh, a man would have received that same criticism?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I think people have been calling for Justice Ginsburg to resign in a variety of ways for decades. So I could imagine that she bristled at at that as a, as a call to action. Um, But I actually think my, you know, who knows what what would have happened if she had stepped down. I do know that um, they never, they never filled Justice Scalia's seat and it stayed open for almost a year. And so it, it's really unclear what would have what would have happened, and the moment we are in is a really fragile time in our democracy. It's fragile because of the overt politicization of the Supreme Court, and 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 the reason the Supreme Court can't be that sort of political body in the same way that, say, Congress is, is because. Part of what gives it its power and credibility is consistency in the rule of law. And if the idea really goes that it is really more of a power grab that shifts with the wind of political power and nothing else, we will be a worse country for it. And I feel like, you know, I I, I worry if that um, that we aren't recognizing what's unfolding right before our eyes right now. This is extraordinary, the time that we are in. And I'm worried.
0: Yeah, well, let's look a little bit, delve a little bit more into the unfolding of what's going on. We have President Trump, and he's promised to name a woman to the court. And we see some names that he is interviewing right now. And Joe Biden has pledged that, if elected, that he has a vacancy, that he will name an African-American woman, which... I'm sure would have a different philosophy. And also that would be a first. Uh, And so talk about the importance of representation, particularly of how those pledges are relevant.
1: Well, I should also note that President Trump has also pledged that whoever it is that he names will overturn the Affordable Care Act and overturn Roe v.ersus Wade. So I I think you have to take those promises altogether that he will uh, plan to nominate a woman who will fulfill those missions and more. And so that would be distressing in any time, but what's so especially distressing is he has also said that he plans to ensure that it is rushed through So that there is someone seated in order to uh, rule on an election case. That is scary times. We have never had a Supreme Court nominee this close to an election be raced through in this way. And people have already started voting. We are in the election zone. So it's not even like, oh, election day is 40 days away. People started voting a week ago. So, you know, what's at stake around it can be more clear. You know, um, Vice President Biden has said that he will nominate a Black woman. I have to say that, you know, there's no, he hasn't put out a list, but other people have been putting out lists. And one of the things that I think is so important about these lists that are floating around is a recognition of the extraordinarily deep bench of black women who, are, who could be in any role but could be on the Supreme Court and naming their names and getting the country to know um, these women who are either already judges or in academia or leading institution. There's so many. Like he, he has, he could have a binder full if he chooses.
0: <laughs> a Very deep bench, uh, so to speak. Would you like to see him put out a list or? I don't think it's
1: important. I actually think the process that um, President Trump used to put out re- lists that were created by the Federalist Society was like a really extraordinary idea and disconcerting. And it created this unfortunate dynamic where you had judges who were on the list releasing opinions that you wondered if they were sort of trying to get at the attention and people who weren't on the list, releasing opinions that had really extreme ideas in them. And all of a sudden they found themselves on the list. And so I think it created an unhelpful dynamic, at least with the way that the Trump
0: administration
1: released and handled that list.
0: Yeah, sort of unseemly auditions well, <laughs> coming <came was>,
1: up. <laughs> it was auditions of sort; these very public auditions, and that was true for you know with Justice Kavanaugh. He wasn't on the original list, and then he put out an an, an opinion on abortion, uh, and then all of a sudden he found himself on that list.
0: Ah. Who, who could who could say, right? So I, I, you talked about some of the issues coming up before the court. Um, what are some of the legal issues that have particular consequences for uh, women of color?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Affordable Care Act is going to be argued the week after the election on November 10th. And um, what we know from the Affordable Care Act is that it expanded access to healthcare for millions, and that was more true for Black women. Um, and and we also know it did away with a lot of tricks that insurance companies had up their sleeves before that law. You know, the idea that they would say you can have insurance, but you, you know, of course, we won't cover maternity care. Or if you had a cesarean section, that was a pre-existing condition. So people, some people had insurance, but when they actually needed it, it covered nothing useful for them. And so that's, you know, that whole whether or not we have that healthcare and whether or not millions will lose their health care is bound up in that decision. But there are a range of other cases that are on their way from issues around the criminal justice system issues around um, our workplace non-discrimination requirements. The last term, you saw a huge number of cases, including around immigration and contraception and abortion and labor. And so every year, there are key high stakes cases that really matter that the Supreme Court hears. And I would expect this coming year to be no different.
0: I also want to ask you a broader question. How does the pursuit of equality under the law affect every American, even if you feel that you are not the group that would benefit? How does that broad pursuit for equality, what does that mean for every American?
1: I sort of feel like the pursuit around equality has been, in many ways, the project of this nation, really understanding what it is, what it could be and what it should be. It has been something that has evolved over time. But even if you were someone who doesn't see yourself in the conversations around justice of today, uh, I hope one thing that is clear is an understanding that your fate is actually ultimately bound up with others. And that is true no matter the issue that you're talking about. It is true when you're thinking about how people are treating treated at work or at school. It's true in conversations around health care or whether or not our system of taxes is fair. We aren't on an island of individuals who can just sort of go about their day without worrying about the, the rest of us. We're one community that has decided to bound each other together by rules and laws and norms. And that fragile piece of it is is what I'm worried about. I worry about our project of democracy, our project that is this country.
0: One thing I ask everyone, because when you have a conversation, I ask folks about what is the question, Fatima, that I haven't asked you that you wish I had, for which you have the answer?
1: Well, I don't have any good answers these days, but I, the question people sometimes ask and I'd like to answer is um, whether we think we will win this Supreme Court fight. And the reason why I'd like to ask it in that way is because I want people to know that We are in the early days of one of the fights of our lives. And it is a fight. And I want people to know that the work doesn't end no matter who puts out a press statement. That this is intense work around what sort of country we want to be. And whether we win this particular battle or not, I don't know. But I do know that it will be worth it to fight for what I see as the future of this country and the very institutions that make it up.
0: Mm, What would winning this battle look like for you?
1: Well, you know, a meaningful win would be to match Justice Ginsburg's dying wish that it is the next president and next Congress that actually handles A Supreme Court vacancy. That would be the ultimate win. That would be a win that would preserve some legitimacy of this court, that would preserve some understanding of how our Congress works. Um, But I also know that lurking behind it is really the understanding of the way in which our laws work and the way in which this country works. And so, in my view, engaging in a compelling fight for this country is worth it. And that is what I'm hoping people will do.
0: Yeah. I'm a journalist, but I'm also an African-American woman. And when things like, uh, you know, I was on my feet and Black, Female journalists were, have been giving each other comfort today. Uh, and you, whether it comes to reporting on criminal justice or politics, going into spaces, covering rallies in which you hear all kinds of chants, some directed at you, uh, or when something like Brianna Taylor happens, you're dealing with it in your work, you're a lawyer, I'm a journalist, and in your lived experience uh, and with all that comes to that. I'm someone that has a son who's been profiled with, I live in a, a neighborhood that used to have restricted covenants and, and there are vestiges of that. So you're dealing with the professional and your life. As Fatima Goss head of the National Women's Law Center, you're an African-American woman and your lived experiences. How are you dealing with that? And, and does that affect you as well? How does that affect you?
1: I have to say, I think Black women who are leading institutions or doing as you do, you know, having to show up on the front lines as a, as a reporter and participate in the storytelling of this moment, have an extra responsibility and an extra burden because it feels so important to get it right. Your voice and perspective feels so important because if you're not telling the story and your your sister reporters aren't telling the story, I have a lot of worry about how it's being told, and I want that perspective. And we're all humans, <laughs> and and feeling pain directly. And I you know I think about it when I had to craft a note to my staff today about Brianna Taylor and and understand in that time that they would be feeling pain and and needed a bit of hope and i and i have to say again and again and especially in 2020 it's been black women who've been giving me hope who've been inspiring me to keep going but there are limits you know, we're all human beings in the world. And so the thing that I would say is, I hope you are taking care of yourselves. I hope everyone who is on the lines, you know, doing such a service for all gets a moment to, to care for themselves too.
0: It has been really a great honor and a pleasure to catch up, but also you are in the front lines of all of the issues that we're dealing with right now. And you are from the courts to criminal justice. And uh, this has been Fatima Goss-Graves, the CEO and president of the National Women's Law Center. And thank you for being the inaugural guest of Equal Time.
1: Oh, This is so special, such a pleasure. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mary.
0: So let's try something. This is a segment that I'm going to call What's Been Keeping Me Up at Night? Now, I know the news cycle has been jam-packed, and not just this week, but in all of 2020. But a story that seemed to disappear too quickly was the report from a whistleblower nurse in Georgia that migrant women held at a privately run ICE detention center underwent gynecological procedures, including hysterectomies, without fully understanding or consenting to them. Many saw that story and said, this is not who we are. But considering America's not so distant past, when similar procedures were done on those judged less worthy, disproportionately poor, often black, brown, or indigenous women and girls, and some men, well, maybe we ought to think about that. For example, Between 1929 and the early 1970s, North Carolina sterilized more than 7,600 individuals in the name of improving the state's human stock. Legislation set aside $10 million to pay to victims, though not everybody got a cut of that money. And after all, how much money is that worth? It's important to say now that the cases in Georgia are being investigated, and we don't know all the facts yet, and Congress is launching inquiries. But just the thought of what was possibly done in the government's name, and so in ours, well, that's what's been keeping me up at night. It's something I talk about in my latest roll call column. So now, it's your turn. Let me know what keeps you up at night get in touch with me on Twitter at mcurtisnc3. For all of us at CQ Roll Call, thanks for joining me. Please subscribe and listen to Equal Time and our other podcasts at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.